This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome back to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. As you have been listening to, we are at the After the Digital Tornado Conference here on the Penn campus, uh, spending the day looking back at the last 20 years of uh, the internet from a policy perspective uh, and a variety of other levels. Great to have you with us here today. We have seen a variety of M&A activity in the communications industry in the last few years, and it continues with the recent offerings towards 20, 21st Century Fox by several large media outlets. But what does this all mean for the consumer, the relationship between they and the corporate world? And how can regulation protect both of those sides? Christopher Yu is the uh, John H. Chestnut Professor of Law Communication uh, at the University of Pennsylvania Law School and also Computer and Information Science. He's also Director of the Center for Technology, Innovation, and Competition here as well. And it's a pleasure to have him joining us. Nice being you. Thank you for coming in. Pleasure's mine. Uh, I'll ask a question I've, I've asked of our other guests as well, but when you're looking back at the last 20 years and coming together and at, at this type of event, what is it that you really take from it in the end? So what's what's interesting is um, I find that things go in waves. So in the, about 20 years ago, there's a huge techno optimism that the internet was going to solve all our problems. And what you see right now is a, a grave concern about certain aspects about the internet. You're worried about the fake news and the way the bots have uh, manipulated some of the uh, the speech that we've seen. And I, you know, my personal opinion is. It's never as bad as the bad seems, and it's never as good as the good seems. You always try to find a ride somewhere in the middle. That's what I tell my kids, you know, to try not to get too high, too low. If you take a 20-year look back, and I actually just wrote an article uh, looking back 40 years. I'm sorry, it's longer than the conference. But um, if you look at the big problems we had then, we've largely solved them. We had a monopoly phone provider, and now with wireless phones, we have four or five choices. We had one uh, cable company for multi-channel. Well, we had a triopoly of broadcast television networks. Now we have hundreds. We don't know what to do with them. Uh, We had one uh, multi-channel provider that was cable. We now have a couple satellite providers, and with online uh, outlets like Netflix, they're blowing them out of the water. And if you sort of go down one at a time, you realize that, in fact, things have gotten much better better in many ways, which isn't to say there aren't some problems, but I find that some of the alarmist tone we have right now is a bit overdrawn. And what I find is, uh, so I've been at this long enough, you know, I remember if we were looking back 20 years ago, what were we worried about? We were worried about the merge, you mentioned mergers, the merger of AOL, Time Warner. Yeah, yeah. And everyone was thought, oh, the big throttle point of the internet is AOL keywords. Yeah, now, the funny right. thing is, you know, from a 20-year perspective, we, we understand that things change a lot. And we thought that the AOL Time Warner merger was the end of history. As it turns out, it was just the end of $200 million of Time Warner shareholder value. And so it's just a very interesting world that if you take a longer view, it's a much more dynamic place. And that, in fact, I think there's, uh, the, fa- the problems we've had lately have obscured much of the good that has happened in the last 20 years from having the Internet. It seems to me when, when I'm looking at this to a degree that and when you think of quote unquote competition uh there are people out there that feel that you know we're losing competition because you have companies that have become so big but when you think of it, as you mentioned just so many other providers whether it be uh in tv or whether it be in communication whatever it might be it feels like competition is as alive as it's ever been how do you respond to that we forget you know facebook didn't exist 10 years ago 
you know, Google only is 20 years old. I mean, we see probably more dynamism of large companies coming up. I, I, there's a thing I often, uh, a diagram I often show my students. I show the top 10 largest companies from 20 years ago and 10 years ago. And the only ones that are come all the way through from then until now are ExxonMobil and Microsoft. The others tended to be large petroleum companies, some pharmaceutical companies and banks. And now what we see are large tech companies. Yeah. And what you see is 10 years ago, these, these companies were not that big a deal. Oh, they were a big deal, but they, they don't they seem so central to us now. We also forget that, you know, if you'd had this conversation ten years ago, we'd be worried about MySpace as the dominant social networking <laughs> provider. And now it's kind of a bad joke. And so what's fascinating to me is um we have to keep in mind that all these companies they come and go, and now people are talking about, oh, Netflix is this dominant company. We forget that when they shifted from their model of mailing DVDs to uh sending it over the internet, their market cap dropped from fourteen billion down to two billion. Yeah. And everyone were wondering would they survive. And now they're riding high because they took a lot of risks and forward contracts with movie studios. But I mean, we forget and how important that is. We talk about Uber and uh, Airbnb and worry about them being as dominant platforms. These are young companies that are creating tremendous opportunities and tremendous innovation in the world. And what I see is actually a lot more positive than negative. There may be some things we need to deal with, but um, I would say that by and large, we shouldn't let obscure the problems that exist, let the problems that exist obscure all the wonderful things that we didn't have five years ago or 10 years ago. How do you view, though, the, the, the change and the growth of the internet from the legal perspective and how companies interact? with consumers and obviously they they are trying to provide service but they're also have to worry about their bottom line as well We've always had companies that are worried about their bottom line. I mean, we've had a privately provided telephone system. All of our, unlike the rest of the world, we don't have a BBC. We have privately provided television companies. And frankly, I think that we've had a tremendously robust investment and a tremendously vibrant environment because of it. You forget, if you look at the UK before they privatized their television phone system, we were the only country in the world with a private telephone system for decades. Yeah. And in the 80s and 90s, everyone came our way. You forget in the 1980s in the UK, the waiting list for a telephone was six years. There was a black market for telephones that could get installed. The service was uniformly terrible. And that, in fact, private market provision was had a lot of real benefits. And if you look at uh, the way things are working in television now, uh, the government-owned stations in Europe are actually retarding the deployment of Netflix and all these other wonderful technologies because of their control over the system. And what's fascinating to me. Again, I don't, want, I don't want to be, as I said, don't get too high, don't get too low. I don't right. mean to be a, a, a Pollyanna about this. I mean, there are real challenges, but to say that that uh, the alarmist tone that suggests, oh, um, the internet is a bad thing at this point, um, you miss what's going on, for example, in the developing world, where they realize this tremendous optimism about the internet still, both not just in terms of communications and the things we're talking about, but Business opportunity, access to markets, to be able to sell internationally really for the first time, it really has a tremendous uh, positive side as well. And, and then here in the United States, uh, we've talked about the, the growth uh, of the medical sector because of the use of technology as well. Well, what's fascinating to me, the medical sector is going to reorganize what we think of the Internet. Uh, so we're used to thinking of the Internet the way it came up in the AOL days, which was a PC attached to a phone line to do email and web. <laughs> Web browsing. Yeah. When we look at smart grid, uh, the medicine, the medical devices, autonomous vehicles, the way these things are going to operate are going to look nothing like what we've seen before. 
And we don't want to let us be the generals fighting the last war. You know, we uh, have to look at, in fact, these new technologies are going to reorganize things in really dramatic ways. And what we've learned is uh, we're not that smart. I mean, we think we can predict the future, but every so-called expert who I thought who said they, they knew how to invest, well, they're not sitting on the beach clipping coupons and enjoying themselves. I mean, they're, uh, they're as wrong as often as they're right. And that's because that's the way innovation is. It's just hard. Christopher, you is a professor of law, community and Computer and Information Science here at the University of Pennsylvania. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. So then where we are right now, how do you view the role of our government and our regulators in dealing with a lot of these companies? Because to a degree, they obviously have to be watchful of the consumer, but they also work hand in hand with the companies to make sure to a degree, that they can be successful as well. So I think they have a role, what I think of it as an enforcer as opposed to a regulator. And I always bear in mind a quote. Uh, I'm going to I attribute it right now to Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany. It's not her. She stole it, but that's okay. I mean, she doesn't <laughs> pretend it's unique to her. She says the difference between the innovation environment in Europe and the U.S. is in Europe, everything that's not forbidden, that's not permitted, is forbidden. In the U.S., everything that's not forbidden is permitted. What does that mean? If the government hasn't affirmatively said anything, the default answer in the U.S. is yes, not no. So if you dream up something, unless the government has explicitly done something, you have the latitude to try. And I think that is where the right way to handle innovation, create an atmosphere that's conducive to to real innovation. Now, that still allows the government to step in if after people try, you find out that it's hurting consumers. That's where we have things like antitrust law, consumer protection law to step in. But if you have a new innovation and you have to show not harm after the fact, but benefits before the fact, before they'll allow you to do it, that's just too steep a road to ask anyone to, to, to to climb. And what you end up is um, you lose the room for experimentation that we've seen in the U.S. that you just don't see in other countries. You know, one paradigm I think really nails it down for me. I went to Europe and I was talking to them about autonomous vehicles and they spoke with great pride. Oh, we're testing one right now. I said, oh, that's great. Where are you testing it? California. Why? (laughs) The The laws were written in a way that they couldn't do it in Europe. So then does it surprise you uh, how there have been issues with companies like Google and Uber overseas, whereas here in the United States, there seemingly, at least right now, there really aren't that many issues. So there's um, interesting cross-currents I mean, uh, about what the real motivation of some of the lo- big lawsuits. As you probably know, or uh, most people have seen, Google is being sued by the EU yeah. for the largest fine in history. It's $2.7 mil- billion uh, for their search engine. And they're saying that there's a case on their Android operating system for mobile phones that the fine may even be bigger. And so they're going after these companies. And there's back-channel discussions that these are really motivated by French and German media industry companies who can't compete. And there's there's always a danger with competition policy that some country will use it for protectionist purposes. Some people suggest that's part of what motivates some of the Chinese actions in the space. Um, I can't say definitively that's the case one way or the other. I know my friends. I've got a number of friends who work for the enforcement agency in Europe. Uh, they think some of these they, – they question whether the European enforcement authorities are proceeding in a good way. I think history will eventually tell us. But what I would say is that um, we should have an antitrust environment or an enforcement environment 
environment, a legal environment that really allows innovation to occur. Put it a different way. If you go to Europe, they ask, where's the Google of Europe? Where's the Facebook of Europe? And when I go to countries in Asia and they ask me, we want to promote innovation, I said, well, who, look at the outcomes. Who would you rather imitate, the U.S. or Europe? Yeah. And then the answer is pretty clear. They, they think the U.S. has got a better, a better setup. Christopher Yu is a professor here at the University of Pennsylvania in the law school, a professor of law, communication, and computer and information science. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. What's interesting is because obviously the, the Internet is global and the impact uh, is felt on a variety of different uh, uh, levels across all of the different continents. Uh, the the question has been brought up of whether or not here in the United States – we look at our policy not necessarily just for the United States, but look at it more on the global perspective because of so many companies here in the U.S. having those tentacles in other parts of the world. Well, I think that's true, and I think that's true of all truly global companies. When you look at uh, what you're watching now, is uh, what's fascinating is they're actually – two large Chinese internet companies in the top 10, Alibaba and Tencent for the first time. That's only happened in the last year or so. They're looking at global markets. You know, all these companies are. But what's fascinating to me is internet law is fundamentally, the, the law that governs the internet is different than traditional law. It's not just made by governments anymore. There's a bunch of what we call multi-stakeholder institutions, to give it a fancy word, but these are, if you will, international organizations that include not only governments, but users and civil society and yeah. businesses and give them an active voice. I mean, the traditional United Nations style of multilateral governments, governments are the only ones that speak, governments are the only ones that set agendas, and the only ones that vote. That's not the case in modern internet governance. And I think what we see is a much more responsive, supple, interesting, dynamic scheme of regulation that I think has created a very positive environment for innovation. How much do you think that that, that- States here in the U.S. Uh, will need to be involved in this conversation in terms of uh, of levels of regulation. Well, the states are chomping at the bit, and, you know. And I'll tell you right now, there's a whole bunch of privacy regs, uh, statutes proposed by a bunch of states who are trying to fill a void what they perceive as a void. Most of us, I think there's a pretty broad consensus among the Internet community that if we had to have 50 different sets of rules for every piece of content you put out there, it would make life a lot harder. And that, in fact, in many sectors, whether it's broadcasting and cell phones, we understand the importance of a uniform national scheme. Uh, Does that mean there may be some room for that? Maybe in the final analysis. But frankly, I think we've done pretty well with a uniform national regime, and there's a lot of good reason for having that. Uh, one of the concerns of a lot of people uh, in this day and age is obviously the the influence that can come from other countries here in the United States, whether it be within the political realm or whether it's just on society in general. And, and that seemingly is an area that, that has to be addressed. No question. So there's two entirely – I could take this question in two different ways. One is uh, you look at the supposed – the apparent meddling in the U.S. elections, which I find extremely troublesome. Yeah. Um, we have a First Amendment that puts limits on what we can do but doesn't completely shackle us. Yeah. I think some of the – I think that the industry is trying to make some changes, particularly with respect to disclosure about whether something is a paid ad and how it works, which right. I think has some problems. 
promise. And there is some studies that show users do learn and become more critical of information if they're educated in certain ways. And we've seen this in certain other countries that have been successful. The other thing about international influence I always think about is, uh, if I were to abstract to another level, is um, – an assault on what I think of as the 70-year consensus of globalization, uh, in favor of globalization post-World War II, where we actually think of influence from other countries as a positive thing, not a negative thing. Right, yeah. And if you look at the U.S. history, we've gone through this alternation of isolationism versus internationalism at different times. But we've had a long, probably the longest stretch of, of really global engagement. And it's created, I think, um, it's based on a belief that the rising tide will float all boats and that it's been beneficial. And it's central to the role the U.S. has played in the world, um, I find that paradigm under fire. But what I would like to say is that not all foreign influence is bad. I right. think that, yeah. that um, in terms of goods and trade, um, we're benefiting from watching parts of the developing world starting to get its act together and becoming more economically viable. And I think that, you know, um, I'm, I'm an immigrant family. My wife's an immigrant family. I think that we've in, been enriched immensely by having a vibrant exposure of goods from other countries. Which is interesting considering uh, the, if you go back a year or so, uh, the, the, one of the big words around Washington, D.C., or one of the big ideas was whether or not the TPP was going to go through. Well, obviously, that kind of went a different way, yet our country is looking to reach out to China, which if you go back 20 or 30 years, that wouldn't have really occurred. Japan, Philippines, you know, we're, we're looking to, to try and expand our trade, our operations on a variety of different levels. Absolutely. And what strikes me is if you, if you, if you wind the clock back 10 years, the world looks so different. I yeah. mean, this was pre-Crimea, pre-Ukraine, pre-Syria. And the question was, how much was Europe going to expand as opposed to whether it's going to blow apart? Yeah. And we see a world this is in which the threat environment, even post-9-11, was elevated, but not like it is today. And I, I'm hoping that that fear of engagement with other countries doesn't become so large that we lose the benefits. Do we have to, to a degree, with some of the negative elements that, that are associated with the Internet, do we almost have to, to a degree, bake them into our society because of the fact that we are a country that is based on free speech? I think so. I mean, the whole principle of free speech, the solution to bad speech is not suppression, it's more speech. And that's actually a faith in individuals that we're smart enough and robust enough and strong enough to be able to sort it out for ourselves. And in some ways, stepping in with regulation is really quite paternalistic, saying, I'm sorry, you can't handle the truth, to quote a a few good (laughs) Pretty good movie, yeah. Yeah. But it's one of those things where, in fact, we take the opposite position. The whole First Amendment is based around the idea that we can handle the truth. And that, in fact, we don't do ourselves a favor by shielding ourselves from certain realities. So I'll give you one example. In Europe, they have something called the right to be forgotten. And there is a a very prominent uh, Spanish gentleman who uh, had his house... Uh, set up for a foreclosure because he was behind on his payments. As it turns out, he never it was never sold at auction. He made good on his debt. It never happened. But the notice in the newspaper was still there many years later. And he's now embarrassed by this. And he liked this suppressed. You know, to me, the, the, the strong free speech idea is maybe uh, the world is better off knowing that just because someone had a few bumps along the way, it didn't prevent them from being successful. And that, in fact, we should acknowledge that we're not the curated version of ourselves, that we're perfect to the whole world and we hide all our flaws, that, in fact, we're people who had their ups and downs. And I think uh, better exposure to that 
helps us learn that just because you had a bump doesn't mean your life is over. You have to be embarrassed by it. It's just life. So is that part of the reason why we see some of the disturbance that we see in our country right now over free speech? Obviously, there are elements of speech that one side does not appreciate. And we've gone to a point in many cases where we try to suppress that on a variety of different levels. Absolutely. And, you know, we've seen, you know, we have to look back in history, passionate advocacy of partisan positions has been, people look at the gold, supposed golden age of the American Revolution. That's what that looked like back then. Yeah. And so what I think is that having a robust debate is a good thing. What I do think is that there is a stage where um, if someone says something that's this false, if you try to then correct it, you look defensive and weak. And it's a bad position. And it's sort of a no-win problem. I actually have the belief that we have, uh, you can't just criticize the people you disagree with. The people who are on the same side of the argument as you who are taking liberties with fast and loose with facts or, or decorum, we need to police our own. And if we both, t- if the discourse changes to make this much more civilized, we'll actually have a healthier discourse that talks about real issues instead of the clamor that we sometimes get. Does social media help that or hurt that? Uh, the answer is it's not clear. The answer is some of both. Um, yeah. you, you'll see that social media has empowered tremendous people. It's created new means of communication, particularly in the developing world. It is the foundation. It is the basis for political organizing in ways that are very important. Um, there are studies that show coming out right now is that, in fact, social media can be problematic. And uh, the traditional U.S. answer is for us to become more critical and not blindly accept the things we see. And I think some of us have lost some of that. And I think that, um, look, I'm a parent. I've had to teach my kids that and uh, teach them how to be responsible consumers of media. And that's all part of it. Which puts more emphasis on the role that companies like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and the like play in this process uh, of understanding what they can and can't do. Absolutely. Now, I'll tell you, the First Amendment doesn't restrict any companies. It only restricts the government. Companies, if they want to change their policies because they believe that's better for their users or better for the country, completely free to do so. Right. Uh, What is your expectation policy-wise then then we are going to head uh, with the use of the internet moving forward? Well, I'm... After coming off the last election, I've learned not to make predictions and not to put much weight behind them. But what I would say is um, it's fairly clear that the Internet part of the economy is continuing to grow. Uh, We have a a different kind of world of the Internet where your toaster is going to be connected. We're going to see a different kind of interaction. It's not just web content on a browser anymore. And we've shifted that to where it's apps on a phone. We forget the the iPhone was only invented in 2007. So, I mean, this is a fairly new thing. We're going to see something completely different in the the smart home, smart grid kind of world. And I think that that's very positive and potentially has a lot of benefits. Are there risks? Yeah, absolutely. We just have to be able to deal with those. But, you know, what I think is, you know, I think that we're going to see, look, we, 10 years ago, Facebook didn't exist. It's now the sixth largest company in the world. Yeah. Um, do we know who, what the, do we, can we predict what the large, 10 largest companies in the world will be 10 years from now? Um, I wouldn't bait my house on it. Yeah. And so my action is you know, by creating, there's a theory of a UCLA economist that said we should let innovation happen the way evolution does. 
which is how does evolution work? Random mutation, some of it survives, some of it dies. What you need is a lot of innovation. And if you don't ask people to explain too much why they're doing it, because they don't always know, what they're really saying is we need a variety of people trying different things. And we, try, we learn by trial and error more than by deliberate choice. And that what I see is in the internet environment, that has been the case. Right. Google said we're never going to do ads. Facebook was supposed to be a way for freshmen to get dates. I mean, it was just <laughs> no one. And I could give you stories about Viagra and right. Post-it notes and all these other things. But the reality is, you know, the people who do these innovations often don't know what they are. Yeah. And asking people to predict all that stuff is just too, too big a hill to climb. Ask me uh, to predict it. If I knew the answer to that, I wouldn't be saying it here. I'd be investing and be very happy. Mark Zuckerberg could be in that same boat. Nice meeting you. Thank you very much for coming in. Pleasure. Greatly appreciate it. Christopher Yu, professor of law here at the University of uh, Pennsylvania. That will take care of what we are doing here today at the After the Digital Tornado Conference. We will be back with you tomorrow at 10 a.m. East here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.